Mark chapter 5, and uh, you need to shield your eyes because we're about to bring the lights up, okay? In three, two, one. Oh, Gabe was early. Okay. We practiced that, Gabe. Uh, just kidding. You know, one of the things in this building that we, we don't have control over a lot of stuff, and the lights is part of it, and so we have to kind of flip them on and flip them off, and, and so sorry if that's abrupt, but, um, you know, maybe that'll be different in the future. Uh, Mark chapter 5, we've been studying our way through Mark uh, a little bit at a time, and this is going to be the last one for a little while, because Advent begins next week, and uh, some, in some traditions they've started it this Sunday, but uh, we're starting it next Sunday. It's the four Sundays before Christmas, and uh, so that'll be starting next week, and Advent is uh, it's something that has I feel like has become important to our yearly rhythms as a church. Um, you know, I, I didn't know much about it growing up. Uh, the the churches I was a part of didn't we we did an Advent wreath I think sometimes, but we didn't celebrate the season in the true sense of of what the church fathers intended when they designed it. And Christians have practiced uh, their way through Advent and Lent and other parts of the church calendar for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so for us as a church, we, uh, you know, we give ourselves to that season in, in really specific ways. I'll be sending out uh, an email this week with a bunch of details in it, but it's, it's going to be a lot of the normal things that you're used to. We have the Maison de Ami Christmas party uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. We have two wish lists left if anyone uh, would like to participate. What that is, is we, there's, it's a group home. We have some of our friends uh, who live over there. And so we basically get their wish list for Christmas and uh, for everyone that lives in the home, which is like 40-something 40, 40 folks, and we get their Christmas list and we do our best to get everything on it. And uh, we bring all those gifts back in. They're due next Sunday. And then the wrapping party is the Wednesday after that on the 6th. And so we wrap all the, all the boxes up and get everything ready. And the party is the following Saturday. And there's food, and there's music, and there's uh, Santa Claus usually makes an appearance, and we give out all the gifts and everything. And that's a part of Advent for us, as well as um, our Breakfast on the Levy opportunities, our, uh, our, our offering that we'll take on the 17th as part of our Lessons and Carols service. So there's a bunch of stuff coming up, and it all begins next week. And the thing about Advent that uh, is very important to keep in mind is that um, it's not just a focus on the first arrival of Jesus. Advent means arrival. And, and, and so it is a focus on his first arrival as a baby in Bethlehem. But you are also looking forward to his second arrival. We believe that Jesus is coming, is coming to the earth to make all things new again. And that we live between his first arrival and his second arrival. And uh, so to truly celebrate Advent, you're looking at both of those things. You're studying about the baby in Bethlehem. You're also studying about uh, the things that he has told us about the new earth and uh, everything that that will be a part of of our lives forever. Um, and so we'll be celebrating that over the next couple of weeks, which means we'll stop going through Mark for just a little while. Um, but tonight we get to a, a passage in Mark that, 
that I, I have come to see this as kind of three stories in a row that are uh, they're kind of similar, they're kind of different. And this one's a little bit long, so let me just read it uh, together. You know, beginning of, of or the end of chapter 4, we looked at Jesus calming the storm. Beginning of chapter 5, we looked at uh, Jesus uh, healing a man with a demon. And now we have uh, physical healing uh, that we can see Jesus do twice. So let's start in verse 21. So when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a, a, who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, she felt, uh, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the, the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Okay. So when we first started going through Mark, um, I, I, I set up the first couple of weeks around two questions. And the, the idea was that we can study any passage of Scripture. Anyone can study any passage of Scripture. Uh, and... And approach it with these two questions and come away with something. Uh, sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes you have to dig for it a little bit. But there's, there's two things. Because every passage, there's a, there's a reason why God made sure this made it into the Scriptures for us. So two questions. One is, what does God want us to know? Like based on this, this story, what does God want us to know? The second thing is, what does God want us to do? And so I'm going to use that again tonight. 
I have two things that he wants us to know, even though there are many more. And three things he wants us to do, even though there are many more as well. The first thing that God wants us to know is that Jesus has absolute authority over sickness and death. Look at verse, look at verses, look at verse 27 again. This is the, the woman. So, so the rhythm of the story is that Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes up to Jesus. He says, my, my daughter is sick. Um, and uh, will you, like she's about to die, will you come lay hands on her that she can be healed? Jesus says, awesome. He's on the way to the house. There's a crowd all around him. And a woman uh, comes up behind him and just grabs onto his garment because she has her own medical condition. Uh, Jesus feels the power go out of him. He's like, wait, wait, what was that? Um, she says, well, it was me. And he says, your faith has made you well. You're, you're good to go. Then he continues on to the house. They get word that she's, the girl has died. They're like, let's not waste your time. She's already dead. Jesus says, well, death is final to you folks, but not to me. So he goes in, raises her uh, from the dead, and uh, that's, the, that's the story. So if God wants us to know that Jesus has absolute power over authority, uh, I'm sorry, absolute authority over sickness and death, Look at the, the exact like scenario. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd, touched his garment. For she said, if I uh, touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of, dr- flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed. This, this immediate healing. That Jesus didn't even, he didn't even have to like, pray anything, say anything. He didn't have to touch her directly. It was just the clothing that he was wearing, you know, like anything that was connected to him. Like it was, it was that like there was that much power in him, absolute authority to the point where he didn't even heal her, like cognitively, you know. That's legitimate authority right there. Um, and then the the man, look in verse forty one. He goes in. The little girl has passed away. Verse forty one. Taking her by the hand, he said to her. Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking. So over sickness with with the woman who had this internal bleeding problem, over death with this little girl whose sickness had taken her life from her to the point where they they went and found the dad and they were like, look, she's gone. Don't even bother the rabbi anymore. And Jesus, in intentional ways and just by him being him, uh, was able to heal them. We've already seen his demonstration, the demonstration of his authority over nature when he tells the storm to calm down. And we've seen his authority over the, the, the demonic world when he tells the demons to come out of the man and into the pigs and they run down the hill. And now we see one more example of the fact that everything that sin broke in Genesis 3, Jesus has authority over that. We were broken uh, we were broken, like our physical bodies were broken, our relationships were broken, the, the, the earth was broken, uh, the, like, the demonic rebellion of angels now have uh, certain like, authority and certain, you know, uh, their will being carried out, that kind of stuff. And, and Jesus, it's like he's systematically going through in his ministry and one at a time showing us examples of things that sin broke that he, is actually, that he actually has authority over. Things that, that we look at and we, we think are, are final or uncurable. And there's just things that, that just cannot be conquered. And Jesus just comes in and conquers them one by one by one by one. It reminded me of the, 
when I, when I was in seminary, there's you know there's only about eight things from seminary that I took away that I feel like were worth it, um, and uh, nothing in seminary. That was just my experience. But uh, the one of them was we were we were talking about the plagues in Egypt when Moses you know would go and you know let my people go that thing, and he would go and tell the Pharaoh something and you know kept saying no, and, and so these different plagues were coming in, and the list of plagues always seemed so random to me, you know like. Like, God was just, like, picking weird things to make happen. And one of the Old Testament professors, he said, actually, what's happening here is, one by one, God is, is picking something that the Egyptians worshipped and showing that he has authority over it. And so they worshipped, you know, there was a God of the crops, and there was a God of the cattle, and a, and a God of all the insects, and, a, and the sun was a God, and the Nile River was a God, and Pharaoh was a God. And so it wasn't God picking random things to get their attention. It was God systematically going through and showing His authority over these things that they worshipped to show that He was the true God. And it seems as if a part of Jesus' ministry was going around and showing, look, I have authority over nature. Nature was broken by sin. I have authority over that. Uh, physically, you were broken by sin. I have authority over that. Um, the, the demonic realm seems to be having its way in the world, but actually I have authority over them. One by one by one, he's going through these broken things and showing that he is the one in authority over them. One unconquerable thing after another, just proving who he is. So we, we need to know and, and recognize the fact that Jesus has that authority. And in this story in particular, authority over like physical sickness and, and over death. Physical sickness, I think we can buy into that. Even death seems it's so permanent. But yet, Jesus is saying, no, I, I get the last word on those things as well. Don't, don't forget that. The second thing stems from the first thing for us to know. is that physical healing points to something greater. I think it's, it's easy to read a story like this and to say, uh, okay, well, that's great for this little girl, but what about all the other people? What about the, all the other deaths? What about, what about the, I mean, I'm sure it was great that this woman was healed, but I bet there were tons of sick people. Jesus didn't heal everyone. He didn't raise everyone from the dead. And eventually this woman would die. And eventually this little girl would hopefully grow up and live a nice full life, but eventually she would pass away as well. Like, how are, are we supposed to think about physical healing? Like, what's the, what's the correct way, the correct perspective to have on it? Uh, in the here and now, because in between his first coming and his second coming is where we are, and um, we're able to see the heart of God here in this in this story and, and throughout the the New Testament. We're also able to see glimpses of our future. And so, for this woman, he's he's essentially like essentially what we're saying is um, Jesus is looking at her and saying, "You weren't meant to have this this problem. You weren't." Uh, God's inten- intentional design for His children was not that they they be physically uh, broken and sick and eventually die. That's not what He wants. So you are going to be healed, and that's going to give a glimpse of the healing that Jesus brings. He raises this girl from the dead and says, "Yeah, you weren't made for death; you're made for life." And so I'm going to bring I'm going to give you life because that's what what happens here. That these physical healings and this and the the resurrection stories and things like that, they're they're pointing to something greater that's in our future. It's a glimpse of what's ahead, but there is also the reality, the fact that we're not there yet. That we live between his first arrival and his second arrival, and 
that's a place where everyone doesn't get healed. And everyone doesn't get raised from the dead. That all the brokenness that we carry, uh, Jesus meets us in, meets us in that brokenness. And, and uh, the, those glimpses of our future are supposed to remind us of the fact that, yeah, this, this is what we were created for. We were created to be healthy and created to be alive. And Jesus has provided a way for us to be healthy and alive forever. And so we look ahead at our future, but it also reminds us that this world is not our home. You know? Like, we're, we're here, and it's very easy to settle in and be like, yeah, you know, this is kind of all there is to it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my whole life as though this life is ultimate. The correct way to look at healings and resurrections in the New Testament is say, oh yeah, that, he's reminding us of what our future looks like. He's reminding us that you were created for more. Some call this the already, not yet, the already slash not yet kingdom. So already means that it's here and now because Jesus is here and now. Like he's already, he's already brought the fact that God rules and reigns to our lives. That's us. So it's already here, but it's also not yet here, reminding us that it's, this is not the end of the story. And this world's not our home. So when we are sick, we're reminded of like, oh yeah, I'm, this isn't ultimate. When someone passes away, <clears throat> we're reminded this is not ultimate. We live in the tension between the kingdom that he's brought and the kingdom that he was bringing in an ultimate sense. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says that Jesus was indeed starting a revolution. And he was indeed bringing God's healing power, but his aim went deeper. These things were signs of the real revolution, the real healing that God was to accomplish through Jesus' death and resurrection. Signposts are important, but they aren't the destination. These are, these are signposts showing you what the future looks like, but it's not the destination. I always get annoyed when you're driving into Texas on I-10, headed west, and there's this sign, and it says, like, El Paso, 800 and something, something miles, you know? I'm like, we get it, Texas. You know, you're good at landmass. Okay, like, it's fine. We're very impressed by you. Thanks for boasting that this city is that far away. Um, that is not, you know, you're looking at that, and they're pretty much just bragging on how big their state is. But when you see you're X number of miles away from your destination, are you like, hey, is this good enough? Like, are we, we good? You know, we're 43 miles from uh, where we're headed. Uh, y'all want to just turn around now? You know, like, no. Because the signpost is not the destination. It's just telling you you're headed in the right direction. And your future is this way. Like you're, you're doing well, but uh, it's, it's not the arrival point. And sometimes uh, we just need to be reminded that healing tells a part of the story, but so does sickness and death. Now, I hate to say that. I, was, I feel like a jerk when I say it that way. But like neither of those are wasted. When someone is healed, it's foreshadowing what's ahead. When someone uh, is not healed, it's also telling a part of the story. It's reminding us that we need a Redeemer that can do the permanent healing. And Jesus is that one who has come. So nothing is wasted. So he wants us to know that Jesus has authority over sickness and death. 
And that physical healing points to something greater. So that's why Jesus didn't go around and heal everyone, because uh, he just needed to point in the right direction. But if he went and healed everyone, then what's, what does that say about the future? So we have to rem- keep those things in perspective. <clears throat> so with that stuff in mind, what does he want us to do? Like you look at this story and you're like, what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, and I think it's especially important for those of you who are not facing physical sickness at, at the moment. And maybe no one close to you is either. Like maybe you're looking at this and you're like, okay, well, there may come a point when this story is relevant. But right now, it, it, maybe it isn't. Let me give you three, three things that will meet you where you are no matter what's going on. The first one that he wants us to do is, a, is, is to seek Jesus. It sounds like such a cliche thing in churches, you know, but that's really what happens. I mean, look at, look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. This guy was like one, like one of the big dogs at the synagogue. Jesus was was bringing about a revolution that would overthrow the synagogue. This dude should, was one of the like Pharisee types who was persecuting Jesus, who were always trying to trick him, and they were would be against him. And yet, when Jesus gets out of the boat, boy sees him and like goes right to him. He's literally sought him out. When we talk about seeking the face of God. This is what it is. It's like I'm you see I'm gonna I'm gonna make my way to you. I need to get to you. Same thing, look at verse 27 with the woman. She had heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Like Jesus is walking, crowd all around her, and she's like, like elbowing, like probably throwing some you know, shoulders into people, getting her up to him just to touch his garment. That's, that's seeking him. She probably could have talked her way into all kind of reasons to not like fight her way through the crowd and that kind of stuff. But she was determined. So both Jairus and this woman were determined to get to Jesus. And they had to find his physical location in the town. You know? like Jesus was not omnipresent at this point. He's in one place at one time. And so they had to like find him and like find a way to get to him. We, we see this in all kind of places in the New Testament. But... We have it a lot easier, don't we? Like seeking Jesus does not require a road trip. It doesn't require uh, us like fighting our way through a crowd or cutting the hole in the roof to lower our friend down. It doesn't require any of that stuff now. Jesus is is with us. The Holy Spirit like like um, manifests Jesus so that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And so for us, seeking Him is it's it's praying and it's it's a thought life. It's asking and seeking and knocking. It's, it's singing. It's, it's taking communion. It's all of these things that we are seeking Him. All of it. You open up your Bible. You're connecting with Him. All of this is how we seek Him. So I think that we're supposed to look at this, like their example, and be like, man, they, they just went after Him. I think we're supposed to be encouraged to do the same thing. Maybe challenged to do the same thing. Maybe convicted of whatever the Spirit wants to do with this in your world is fine. But Christ in you is the hope of glory, so we've got to make the effort and handle our business. 
in, not N.T. Wright, Dallas Willard, he makes it very clear in his opinion that the outcome may be God's responsibility, but the effort is ours. And so if you need to handle your business, you need to handle your business. I mean, that's just that's all there is to it. So seeking him out. I wrote this down. It may not make sense, but I'm going to move on in just a second. That our, our flesh wants us self-absorbed, and the world wants us deceived, and the enemy wants us destroyed. But our Savior wants us resurrected and healed and reconciled and restored and whole and holy forever. And so... Us seeking Him is crucial. And we can learn from Jairus and this woman of what it means. And whatever it is that you're facing, Jesus is not in the middle of a crowd and you've got to fight your way to Him. He's literally in you. If you are a Christian, you have placed your faith in Him uh, that Jesus lives in you. So seeking Him, there's really no excuse. If you're a mess... Uh, then you need to go for it and follow their example. The second thing that he wants us to do is to have faith. Look at 23. Look at the, the words of Jairus to Jesus, verse 23. He says, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. You think he, you think he believes Jesus can do this? He's not him hauling around it. like He's just very direct. He said, my, daughter, my girl's about to die. If you will just lay your hands on her, she'll be fine. That's, that's deep. Look at 28. The woman's motive. If I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. That's deep belief that Jesus Christ has the power to change any human life. I think we're supposed to look at this and we're supposed, to, we're supposed to be challenged, again, or convicted, or encouraged, or whatever it is, wherever it meets you, it meets you. But you look at that faith, you're like, man, I, all I need is Jesus to speak into this. I, just need to, I, just, I don't even have to talk to him, I just need to, to like, touch, the, touch the robe. That's how powerful he is, it's just like oozing off of him. You know, there are a lot of people... Touching him in the crowd, but Jesus knew the difference between a touch of faith and everything else. That that belief, it got his attention. The power went out from him. He's like, wait, 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 that's different. That's different than everyone bumping into me and crowding me out and that kind of stuff. Something different is, someone here is different. And it was her faith. He says, your faith has made you well. And we know it's not her her faith didn't, like, she didn't heal herself in that sense. He's saying, no, you, you believe, and I'm, I'm cooperating with your belief. That's how it works. They were both in some pretty fearful situations, but they believed that Jesus was the one who could make a difference. They're, I mean, can you imagine, like, scarier scenarios? Some of you, your, your absolute worst fear in your whole life is that something will happen to your kids. I know because a couple of summers ago, I went around to every community group and talked on fear and asked you what your worst fears were. And that was the unanimous number one thing. So Jarius was in a very fearful situation. Here's this woman who's had this internal bleeding and no, one, no physician can help her. She like, has no idea what to do. Those are scary situations. And yet, 
Jesus pays attention to faith. There's a difference between can he and will he. Anytime you talk about physical healing, I feel like there's a there's like a check in our like in our like logic a little bit of like, man, I'm I'm scared to ask for healing because what if he doesn't? You know? Is that gonna be bad for other people? Is that gonna be embarrassing for me? Is that gonna send me on like a weird faith journey? And uh, am I gonna look foolish for like declaring that I believe like healing is coming for me? And there's a difference between can he heal me and will he heal me? Those are very different things. Can he heal you? Well, I can't speak for you, but for me, I definitely believe that whatever I may face, he can heal me of it. I don't, I don't doubt his ability. And so recognizing that he has authority over our sickness and over death is very important. Can he? Absolutely. Do we need to tell him that we believe that? Absolutely. But it's different from will he. And I think sometimes in some of the, like the healing movements of, of the churches, those two have like merged together too much. I think that they need to be separate. I think that's it's indicative when Jesus prays, he is very clear to say, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Gethsemane, he's praying and being very honest of saying, hey, I would like to not have to die uh, that death, uh, but it's about what you want and not what I want. So in being, in being honest, you can say, this is my, des- this is my desire, but if, if that's not what you do, that's not what you do, that's fine. I'm going to separate the fact, like the can you from the, like, will you. Can you? Yes. Will you? I don't know. I'd really like it if you did. But if you don't, it doesn't change the can you. And if you don't, uh, I'm still going to love you. And I know that you still love me. And if you don't, then the part of the story that I get to tell is reminding people of the brokenness and the fact that this world's not our home. And if you heal me, then the part of the story I get to tell is that we have a future full of the real healing and so whether I'm healed or whether I'm sick forever and, and ultimately pass away, either way I get to tell part of the story. Can you? Yes. Will you? Let's talk about that. But faith is expressed on, in, in that whole conversation across the board. Of saying, you are my only hope. You're it. So I'm going to seek you and I'm going to have faith in you. And the third thing is very simply, just don't wait. <coughs> Moving beyond just physical needs, okay? Don't wait. Jesus is not a last resort. I'm not pointing the finger at Jairus or this woman, okay? They had very unique reasons why Jesus was a last resort for them. Like he was literally on the other side of the lake for a while and... He was only one place at a time and all those kinds of things. But how many times for us does it seem like we have to, like we get to the end of our rope before we're seeking Him in faith? It's so easy. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I know that everyone in here doesn't do that. I'm just acknowledging the fact that it is a trend in the church. It's a trend in my life. It's a trend in maybe your life too. We try to figure it out. We try to logic our way through it. We, we, we figure out, you know, either through 
like our own like intelligent processes, or maybe we bring in other people and all that kind of stuff. And when someone supposed to be like, so how are you praying about it? You're like, oh man, forgot about that. But we 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 can't wait. I mean, human relationships are awesome. You know, your your spouse, your friends, your family, uh, your kids, your church, your pastors, your the people that you you know your resources, your doctors and medical professionals, and uh, or go all the way to other resources, money and possessions. I mean, all the, all these things are they're things. You know, they're people. They're they're in many ways gifts to us, but they were never meant to be uh, Plan A. That when we're we're facing something that's going on, we're we're in some some sort of like situation. It can be a like a physical sickness situation, but it can and it it can be relational things. It could be sin patterns. It could be financial things. It could be all kinds of stuff. The tendency. Uh, in our unabiding state is going to be to figure it out ourselves and talk to our friends and kind of just go that route. But in an abiding sense, like in a, I'm a vine, I'm a branch connected to the vine kind of way, his life flowing into mine and seeking him as in faith is realizing like, no, you're Jesus. You're, you're my everything. My spouse, friends, family, all that, all those kind of things, all those resources, all those other kind of things are, are, are secondary to you, and you are in those things, which is what makes them good, but my primary, like, you're the one I'm looking to. I'm not going to wait until, like, I have no other choice. I'm going to go to you first and be like, I, I don't know what to do about this. But I believe that you do. And that you love me and you will lead me. In many ways, this situation was the opposite of the, the disciples on the boat. We talked about that the other, the other week where they're in the boat, storm comes up and everything's going on. Jesus is taking a nap in the, down in the boat somewhere. and They go and they wake him up because they're like, the boat's taking on water. They go and wake him up and they point their finger at him. And they're like, why don't you care that we're all perishing? Instead of like, hey, you're our only hope here. Uh, could you help us? They blame him and they point the finger at him and they, they have no faith. He tells them that. And this is like the inverse of that story where you have this synagogue leader and this woman who's been suffering for so long and they're like, Jesus, you're the only one that can fix this. And I believe that you can do this. And I'm asking that you will do this. And those disciples, I don't want to be like that. Not, not at this point in Mark. There come a point later on where they're, they're, they do better. But right now, I want to be like this woman or like Jairus. I want to be quick to seek him and quick to express my faith in him. And not at all making him a last resort and waiting, but going for it now. Because the beauty is that he is with us in this moment. That his presence with us is as full in this room as it is in heaven. It's the same. We're just not always aware of it. His presence is just as full in your car going away from here. And just as when you're in your room, wherever you live tonight or wherever you are at work tomorrow, whatever it brings, it's fullness all the time. And Jesus is always saying... Look, I got, I, I'm ready. Come, just come seek me. So wherever this fits into your life, I hope that you welcome it. And don't push away from it. And recognize that we are not in a place now where we have to fight our way through a crowd to get to him. But he's right there with us. When we take communion in a few minutes, it's a reminder. 
It's a reminder of, of who He is, that He's offering us His body and blood. His body broken for us, His blood poured out for us. He's also reminding us, though, that He's not here. It's a meal of remembrance. So hey, He's like, hey, I'm present, but also this is not the end. That's why Taylor's going to be serving it tonight instead of Jesus Himself. So it's a reminder of the already not yet. And whatever you're facing, whatever's going on with you, uh, Jesus invites you to Him. So you can pray, you can, you can, can take, take communion, and this is the kind where you tear the bread and you dip it in yourself. Believing that there is significance to us tearing that bread, because His body was torn. And us tearing from the, from the same bread, there's a unity that happens in the room. So you can come and pray, you can tithe, you can stand and sing, you can do whatever you want. But God has something for you in the songs, in the scriptures, and the fellowship tonight. And so before we dismiss and go our separate ways, let's steward it and see what he has for us. Let's stand together as the band comes back. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for for the faith of this man named Jarius. Synagogue leader who had every reason uh, politically and culturally and everything else to um, to be afraid to approach you, and yet he went straight to you. I'm thankful for this woman who had suffered for so long, and for her hearing about you and her deep belief that you uh, that you could heal her. May we be challenged by their faith, by their determination to get to you. May we also be grateful for the fact that we don't have to fight so hard. That you're already with us and you're already on board and you're ready to help us through whatever, whatever it is that we need to fight through, whatever is going on. And so we approach you tonight in song and in prayer and for communion. If it, in whatever ways folks want to respond. Maybe we do that for ourselves tonight. Maybe we do that on behalf of others. Maybe this is a time of intercession for those who are sick, um, for those who are struggling, who are battling, that we may have faith, uh, maybe even if they don't. But Jesus, we believe that you can, that you, that you have authority over all of our brokenness, and that you are, uh, you are the one who saves and heals and redeems and restores, and uh, that you are with us and for us. So as we respond in these closing moments, may you be glorified. May we handle our business with you. And uh, may we just sense your nearness and your goodness. We love you. Amen. All right. The table is open. Uh, Let's steward these moments well.